0: In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent conversation with Hannah Michelle on her podcast where we discuss the talent crisis as an opportunity.
1: Welcome to Hannah Talks Hiring. Today with us, we have John Westover. Welcome, John.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Yes, we're so excited to have you on the show today. If you don't know John... He's a pretty cool dude, and I have a, a few things that I want to say about him here before we start. So, John is the number one ranked HR, innovation, and future of work global thought leader influencer by Thinkers360. He's also the host and producer of the popular Human Capital Innovations podcast, which I had the pleasure of checking out yesterday for a little bit, and I found the content very valuable and great. He's the Chair and Professor of Organizational Leadership and Change in the Woodbury School of Business at UVU and the Academic Director of the UVU Center for Social Impact, which is awesome. And he received his bachelor's and master's degree from Brigham Young University, his doctorate from the University of Utah, and he's been published widely in academic journals, books, books magazines and in popular media locally, nationally, and abroad, such as Forbes, The Economist, the U.S. News and World Report, the Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. John, is there anything else you'd like to add that you would feel um, that you feel is important for listeners to know?
0: Well I, I really appreciate that kind introduction. And on a personal note, I'm a proud father of six children. And I've been married to my wife for almost 20 years. And so I consider myself uh, a father, husband, and family man, first and foremost. And I'm uh, fortunate enough to have a job and a career that's afforded me a lot of flexibility and autonomy to pursue things I'm interested in while, while uh, devoting time and energy and, and priority towards my family.
1: That is awesome and so great to hear. Six kids. Wow. Yeah, they keep us on our toes. I bet they do. I have two boys and they keep me on my toes. I do not have six. (laughs) Probably a good thing for me. All right. So, John, I'd love to just jump in here with having you start by sharing your thoughts on the current evolution of the labor market how you think we got here and where we could potentially be headed in the future when it comes to the development of the workforce and the hiring ecosystem.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question and it's a fluid question really because things are constantly changing around us. And I would say, you know, prior to COVID two years ago, if you asked me the same question, I probably would have said many of the same things only. I feel like we've, moved so far forward so quickly right. uh, far far faster than i think we would have if the pandemic hadn't have hit so the the trends in the labor force uh, and in the the nature of work uh, had already been taking us in the direction of more automation uh, you know not just with robots in in a factory setting or or mm-hmm. that kind of thing but in terms of AI machine learning deep learning those sorts of things uh, displacing a lot of tasks a lot of um, the types of skills that uh, jobs may have uh, had as a core part of their functioning in the past, uh, displacing e- perhaps even entire jobs uh, and, and that trajectory has is, is been happening for the last you know decade at least. I mean really we're in the in the throes of what has been called the fourth wave of the industrial revolution, and so we just see a dramatic shift happening because of these disruptive innovations. so that was already happening. Um, what was also already happening was this continual kind of shifting of what is called in the academic literature is the, sh- the uh, psychological contract within the workplace. So what that means is kind of this unspoken understanding between employer and employee about the nature of work and, and how the two interface. So you go back 50 years and the psychological contract was such that many... Uh, In fact, you know, really most people, they would go through whatever schooling they were going to go through, um, and then they would go to an organization to work, usually start at the lower rungs, entry level, and then they'd stay there. They'd stay there either for a really long time or perhaps for their entire career, and they would move up the rungs. And that psychological contract was dual uh, loyalty between the employer and the employee, and both wanted it that way. Uh, And the employer would obviously provide the pay and the benefits, as well as the career development and opportunities for advancement and those sorts of things. The employee would come and do the work and and contribute to the organization. And over time, over the last several decades, that has continually eroded uh, and shifted away from that kind of more traditional, uh, what I'll call the traditional psychological contract into really what we see today, where there's not much of any real ongoing commitment or loyalty in most organizations between you know the employer and the employee and so you see a lot of shifting um on the employer side you know going towards a more contingent workforce that gives them more flexibility um they're not as locked into labor costs and so they can be more agile and adaptive on the employee side uh looking you know to to career um hop job hop different organizations to move up in their career and advance in their career and the average employee you know the average tenure for an employee at an organization has dropped dramatically over the the last several decades to now you know millennial and gen z individuals will shift jobs rapidly um now that's not i'm talking in generality so obviously there are some organizations that still foster a lot of um a lot of Commitment and loyalty that really invest in their people and want their people to stick around. Uh, and there are employees that want the same thing. So that still exists, but it's it's much more uncommon now to hear of someone who basically, you know, out of high school or out of college, goes to an organization, spends the next 40 years of their career moving up in that organization. That's a pretty rare kind of a story in right. this day and age. So all of those shifts were happening leading up to the pandemic and pretty much everyone in, you know, in, the, in the realm of the future of work, trying to look around the corner and see what might be happening. Most people predicted within the next 10, 15 years that we would see a continued shift um, towards the breakdown of the psychological contract, a greater shift towards a, a more contingent work, part-time work, gig work uh, in the gig economy, as well as increasing automation and utilization of AI, machine learning and other disruptive technologies. In the type of work we do, so that many jobs would be displaced, many new jobs would be created, many new careers even would be created um, you know, over the course of you know, maybe a decade or two. Uh, what the pandemic has done is it's just accelerated us into that change. Uh, it's, it's taken us, you know, with that existing momentum and trajectory, it, you know, most organizations that weren't, you know, on the you know, boots on the ground, first uh, frontline worker types of organizations. Uh, where you had to have people physically there at, at in the workplace, most other organizations on a dime almost shifted towards virtual work. And even those who had been pretty reticent to do so, even those who uh, even those leaders in those organizations that really were skeptical about virtual work, um, weren't sure how to make it work, how to how to do things like performance management and culture and those sorts of things in a virtual environment, they really had no choice. They had to just shift and figure it out. And now mm-hmm. we're close to two years into it and people have largely figured it out. And so what would have probably taken us another five to 10 years in terms of shift towards comfort level with the technologies and more virtual work or even hybrid work, you know, happened over the span of a year, 18 months. Um, now some mm-hmm. are shifting back. Some are, some are, uh, you know, trying to shift more towards hybrid work but the reality is a shift has changed and you can't put that genie back in the bottle people have tasted what it's like to have the flexibility and the autonomy and the opportunity to do work when it suits them in their schedule and it's part of the reason why we see you know this great resignation happening the great awakening really of people just recognizing that maybe what they took for granted previously pre-pandemic as you know the nature of work and and what they should expect from their organization and what their experience in the workplace would be they they've realize that there's no reason why they have to accept that anymore. And they have options and they can fight for the flexibility. They can fight for uh, the virtual work. And, and so we see organizations wrestling with that. Sorry, that was a really long winded answer to that initial question.
1: No, that is all right. Thank you so much for that valuable insight. I loved how you called it the great awakening instead of the great resignation. Are you you addressed it like that. I think that is, that is really interesting. And so true. I'm curious to know what you think about, so you mentioned the psychological contract as I have been learning more about this and been steeped in the work of, of sourcing and, and hiring. It seems to me that I want to talk maybe about a different type of contract. I don't know if this is the same as the psychological contract you're addressing, But in the past, the contract has been much more perhaps transactional between the employee and the employer. For for example, I am I am buying your services as an employee and you are selling me your talent and your time. But now, with the nature of virtual work, hybrid work, gig work, and all of these things that are disrupting the workforce and and contributing to the different ways that people design their lives, I feel like it's much more now about an employer designing a job of value and how they sell that to, to possible or potential talent. Do you have any comments on that?
0: Yeah. And the way I would frame what you're saying is employee experience. There's a real emphasis right now on the employee experience within the organization. So that includes things like job design, that includes things like the organizational culture, how engaging it is, uh, how hierarchical or flat the organizational structure is, uh, and a lot of those types of things that create the context around which we do our work, right? And, Mm -hmm. And because people have woken up to, you know, and and are more willing now, perhaps than they were a couple of years ago to really question the norms around their organizational life and their work life. They're willing to take a second look at that and say, no, I don't really, it doesn't need to be that way. Why do we need to do it that way? Why does, why do we have to have all these meetings? Why do we have to be in person? Why do we have to do this, that challenging everything, right? Because people are more willing to do that now it's forced, in my opinion, it's forced organizations that perhaps got a little or you know, really not paying proper attention to this, the, the holistic employee experience in the workplace. Uh, and especially, you know, when, when, when uh, the labor market isn't so tight, when, when uh, the employers have plenty of applicants, it's, you know, you can understand where they're coming from. Like they don't have to try as hard because lots of people want to work for them. But mm-hmm. right now the situation is such that if you want to attract and retain really great people, especially in this environment where people are really questioning everything and questioning why, why, why are we doing things this way? If you want to attract and retain great people in this environment, you have to just be really laser focused on the employee experience. So that that, that value proposition that you bring as an employer, as an organization to the job candidate and really through the whole process of recruitment and and uh, hiring, onboarding, all the way through—you know—the different elements of the organization that needs to be stronger. That needs to be more positive. We need to have a psychologically safe environment, an inclusive environment, an innovative uh, culture that fosters creativity, where people feel free to speak up and speak out if they notice something that seems like it's not right, or they question a decision. Like those things have to be in place. And if they're not, people are voting with their feet, and they're going to other organizations. Um, Now I'm a, I'm a big believer that, you know, the grass is not always greener. And so just because I'm experiencing something that's not ideal in my current organization, that doesn't mean I'm magically going to be able to just hop to the next job and find it. Mm -hmm. Like these are the types, all the things we've been mentioning. These are the types of things that pretty much every organization wrestles with and struggles with. Some do better than others, but Everyone's wrestling with these things, and so I also, you know, I want people to do what's right for them and for their family. And if something's not working in your current job, by all means, you know, go look for another opportunity. But I'm also a believer in people trying to lift where they stand and make their current situation the best it possibly can be, and make the contributions they can. So if you see a problem, try to be the change you want to see in the organization, and and be a leader that way. I, I think that. Right. Can also contribute to the type of positive environment that we're talking about and part of that is positive employee experience.
1: Absolutely. I love that. Have you noticed in your work, possibly with companies, whether that's advising or consulting or other HR departments that you've been involved with, have you noticed that this huge shift is hard for HR specifically? to move through, um, because of perhaps the tendency to be really steeped in things like best practices and traditions and to be really safe in the way that they go about implementing policy and, and procedure, which are all of course good things, but have you noticed that it's made it perhaps more difficult to innovate?
0: Yeah, it, it depends on the organization. Um, this, this two-year period has been really interesting in that regard because you see vastly different types of reactions and responses from organizations depending on their existing culture and how ready and adaptive and agile they are in the current context. And I've seen lots of organizations that more or less are like, they've tried to double down, they have tried to put more policies and restrictions in place, they've tried to Uh, I mean, honestly, it's not very charitable um, in terms of how I'm describing this, but, you know, finding more and more ways to micromanage their people um, Mm. in this environment because they're worried. They're worried, like, what does it look like to have a virtual workforce now? And their response is, we're going to micromanage you and we're going to monitor everything and we're going to have all these extra rules and requirements in place. Um, That's a fear-based kind of a response. I've seen plenty of that. And, and honestly, that getting back to the employee experience, if that's been the organization's way of responding to this current situation, they're, they're not going to keep their best people because people are, are fed up with that. Um, But you've had, you've had other organizations that have really leaned into it and they've embraced it. And it, it can be, it really should be the time for HR to shine for HR departments, you know, more, you know, HR as a discipline, as a profession, has been fighting and scratching and clawing, trying to get its seat at the sta- at the table with all the, you know, the 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 executive table. Well, now's the time. Like in in the COVID era, HR has been front and center because so much of what the organization has had to grapple with has been people related, um, and it just, you know, ha- has HR been up to the challenge in in particular organizations? And some it has, some it hasn't. And, and, you know, I, I like to think that we're all up to the challenge, but the reality is we're not. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, some people really are stuck in kind of the old traditions, the old way of doing things. And, you know, we just, we just need to get past that. It's completely understandable. It's a completely human reaction. Um, and nobody likes change. You know, Mm -hmm. most, (laughs) most human beings are resistant, like naturally resistant to change. I get all of that. Um, but one of the reasons why you've seen some organizations really excel and thrive in this environment while others have really floundered in large part is just because of their approach to the people right. functions.
1: Right. Absolutely. I I like how you mentioned that it was a fear-based mentality. I think there are a lot of organizations operating in that. And I think that also is rooted in the fact that HR, in a lot of ways, arose out of mitigating risk originally. And now we're kind of moving into an era where it's so much more than mitigating risk and just dealing with contracts. It's much more about creativity and engaging with people. And so many other colors have come into the profession. And I'm wondering, do you have any... Insight, perhaps, or advice to give someone who is working in a department that may be stuck in that fear based mentality and wants to help move them out. Do you have any advice for maybe where they would start or how they would help move their department into more of a perhaps um, creative or open mindset?
0: Yeah, I, I think part of it comes back to what's your sphere of influence? And I, you know, so I can't really tell anyone what they should do. It, everyone's context is different, right? Right. But look at, look at your sphere of influence. What, you know, if you're a leader of a team, regardless of what the organization is doing, whatever policies, practices, systems, structures are in place, however fear-based they may be as an institution or what the predominant culture may be at, at the organization, in your team and within your sphere of influence, within your sphere of leadership, you, there's tons you can do. each and every day to make it a positive environment for your people. Um, And you can really be the mitigate, you know, kind of that interference between some of the unhealthy stuff that might be happening at the institutional level, uh, creating an environment so that your people actually don't know any different. They just think, Oh, this is a great place to work. And in fact, there's tons of research on this. You know, most people either love or hate their job primarily because of the people they work with and their boss. And you know, when you look at other institution level factors and indicators, those don't play as big of a role usually um, just because people kind of get into their little bubble and they, they mm-hmm. are kind of insulated for either better or for worse. They're either going to have a really crummy experience because they work with terrible people and a terrible boss, or they're going to have a really great experience because they work with great people and a great boss. Uh, and they might have to deal with other things outside their little team and deal with those frustrations from time to time, but largely they're going to have a good experience if your team is a healthy, safe place. So focus on what you can do within your own sphere of influence for your team. Uh, because I think there's way more we can usually do than we think right off the bat. Uh, and if we're really proactive and strategic and just have conversations with our people and really try to develop meaningful relationships of trust and mutual accountability with our people, then I, th- I think much of what we're talking about, you know, we'll be able to create that That really healthy environment, um, at least within our team. Uh, And then on the other hand, you know, I'm a big believer in looking for opportunities to speak up and to speak out. So within my team, I can certainly be proactive as I want to be um, and and try to be as positive as I can be within that team setting. But within the institution, if I'm noticing things that are unhealthy, or they're really questionable, or they're just fear-based tactics, or they're really you know, an over-reliance on compliance-based culture or those sorts of things, you know, I can speak out against those things. Um, mm-hmm. Now, h- how safe and secure do you feel in your job? I'm not going to tell you to, to speak out. You know, that's a decision you're going to have to come up to on your own, uh, depending on your family situation and your professional situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I know for me that I'm in a situation where I'm fairly protected. Uh, and so if, if I want to speak out, uh, because I see something I'm going to speak out and I'm going to push as hard as I feel like I can push and, and try to do it in an effective way so I can have as much impact as possible. Um, but, but that's my approach. Right. Now other people, you know, will have to take a different approach, but ultimately I think we, as long as we're thinking about it and aware of the context we find ourselves in, I think we have a better chance of, of making meaningful impact and, creating at least that healthy environment within our smaller team.
1: Yes, I I love that. I love how you mentioned focusing on your sphere of influence and what you can control and that you iterated that there is a lot more that you can do than you think. Um, I think sometimes HR directors or managers can feel a little bit locked in or stuck about what decisions they can make or what influence they can have and just reassuring that just focus on, on your team, on the day-to-day interactions that you have. And that will, will have a ripple effect, I think, if you start there. So I, I like that. And and I also,
0: I just reiterate, I, I do think it's important for people who, who feel like they can, I, I understand not everyone's situation is such, but if you feel like you're in a position of privilege where you can speak up, it's important that we speak up when we can. Absolutely. Um, you know, if we have a voice, use our voice and speak up for those who don't have a voice. Um, Great. and clearly sometimes that can negatively impact you potentially in your job or in your career. Um, but I've also found like, if I'm working with an organization where, you know, good faith, you know, making ef- good faith efforts to move in the right direction, everyone's going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to fall on their face and get back up. So it's not a question of whether mistakes are made. It's a question of how you respond to the mistakes. Right. And so if I see something and there's no attempt to, 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 uh, respond to it, to, to fix it, to, to address it in a healthy way, that's when, you know, I'm going to feel like I really need to speak up and Mm -hmm. push back and, and, you know, people really, really resist that, or they, they retaliate against me because of that that's probably not a place I'm going to be long-term. That's probably, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put an effort to be the change where I'm at up to a point. And then at some point it becomes unhealthy and I'm going to move on. (laughs) So, so as a leader, we need to do only, we can do that calculus for ourselves within our current situation, um, you know, or for members of our team as they're wrestling with those same types of things. Uh, But I, I would say generally speaking, be bold, be brave, utilize your privilege, leverage your privilege to to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. Bluer than indigo leadership, the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There is no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of your problems. The truth is great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership. Ordinary, everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Academy. Courses, micro-credentials, and certificates to upskill and reskill for the future of work. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.
1: That is great. Thank you for reiterating that point. I think that is extremely important. In the current market right now, there's a lot of people advocating for more pay for lots of different types of positions. And a lot of companies are feeling probably kind of a race to the top, or it's just a competition about who can pay more. What are your thoughts on how much pay is actually a key differentiator in jobs? And do you think that this matters to applicants as much as all of these companies racing to the top think it does. And perhaps if they can't be a part of that race, what are some other things that you think they could do?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Pay is important and you have to pay a fair equitable wage. Otherwise it's a non-starter. Okay. So, so that that's a given, you know, that's kind of my base assumption is pay a, a fair, equitable wage. And, and frankly, personally, I am a big believer in paying a living wage. And and I, I believe that organizations should be looking for ways to, to keep up with inflation and try to pay the market rate. Right. Pay. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, but I, I get it. Like, it's, it's hard. Sometimes you're, you're just lucky to keep your doors open and make payroll, right? And, and mm-hmm. so you may not feel like you're in the situation where you can bump people up. Um, so what do you do? Um, now, pay. There's tons of research on this. Pay, in and of itself, tends to not be a really great long-term motivator. Right. Uh, it can it can be an initial attraction point for a, a new person to come to your organization. So, if they're comparing, you know, pay or, or total compensation packages at various um, employers, you know that that could be the differentiating factor. Should it be the differentiating factor? I would argue no. So, if I'm interviewing for jobs um, you know, of course I want to know about their pay and their benefits package, but I want to know just as much, if not more about their culture, their, their organizational structure, the way the job is designed, how much autonomy I'm going to have, like those sorts of things, as long as I'm, they're going to offer me a fair rate. It's those other things that are going to matter much more to me. And there's a lot of research that shows once the person's in the organization, again, giving them a little bit of a pay bump, um, so that they don't feel like they're there's inequities or, you know, there's misalignments with the market that can be necessary and important, but it's largely all these other factors that are going to matter more than anything. So it's, it comes back to that employee experience, right? Do I get up in the morning, excited to go to work, to work with my team, to, to, to work with my colleagues? Do I have people that I trust and that I genuinely care about? Do we have an environment where we can create and innovate where we can do really cool stuff and where I'm going to have a chance to grow every day? Grow more into my career, uh, regardless of job title or like what my formal position is in the hierarchy, can I continue to grow uh, through the, the position that I'm in in the organization? And if the answer is yes to all those questions, then I'm going to be much more willing to put up with a lagging pay rate. Um, but if, if all those answers are no, uh, and even if they're keeping up with pay, I'm probably going to be looking other places. And if right. not, all those answers are no and they're not paying me well, I'm definitely looking other places.
1: Right. What do you think the future is for certain fields that may not be able to offer benefits like that? Perhaps in maybe more blue collar jobs or monotonous tasks or, or, You know, even things like hospitality or food service, do you how do you see those industries adapting to compete for talent?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. Now, I I will say my bias is and I'm a believer that you can create meaningful, purpose-driven, and 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 fulfilling work in all different types of organizations and all different types of jobs. Um, And so I I do think we often will talk about like these really creative, engaging jobs. Those are all the white collar, you know, high tech jobs. And then you get into like blue collar or manual labor types of jobs. And those ones just innately are going to suck. And I actually don't believe that. I I think we can have meaningful, purpose-driven, fulfilling work um, in a whole range of different types of jobs. And and the labor force is spread out across all these different types of jobs. And so organizations should be paying attention to like, how can I design a meaningful work experience for everyone, regardless of whether you're an entry level person working on the assembly line, all the way on up. Now that said, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I, I I'm not like I totally recognize that there are certain types of jobs that that's probably a little bit more of a challenge. And I've had plenty of those in in my past. So, I mean, prior to getting into, you know, finishing my education and becoming a professor and doing consulting work and stuff, I worked all the crummy jobs. You know, I, I work, I, I picked beans in a field. I worked in a factory. I worked in a couple of call centers. I I worked retail, you know, I've, I've done all those types of jobs. uh, And I know that, you know, there's only so much you can get out of some of those but I also know that, you know, my, my experience there wasn't necessarily the same as those that I was working side by side with. So I'm, I'm thinking of one, one job. I, I worked for about six months, saving up money to go to college at a factory. It was the best paying job I could find in the area. Um, I was trying to save up tuition. And so I go and I work in this and, and I, I constantly had my exit strategy in mind, right? Like I'm working Mm -hmm. six months, I'm earning money, I'm going to university. And then I'm never looking back. That's my whole mentality, (laughs) but I'm working alongside people who worked there for 20 years and, and they liked it just fine. Um, and, and so their kind of priorities and their salient motivators were different than mine. And, and so they were fine. And so part of, part of it is just a values alignment, Um, between employer and job type and the people that you're trying to attract to the job. And like, what do they want? What do they need to get out of the job? What does fulfillment and purpose look like for your different people, right? Because it may be different for me than it is for you or, you know, whatever. Um, But that's all of that said, all of that said, you can definitely still um, improve the nature of most jobs in terms of things like uh, task identity, skill, um, uh, skill variety, autonomy, uh, purpose, and some of those types of things. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in organizations doing whatever they can um, to try to improve the situation.
1: Uh-huh. Um,
0: and and then just recognizing um, that it's not going to be for everyone. The other point I wanted to make in relation to this question, it actually comes back to what I was saying earlier about like AI, robotics, machine learning, you know, automation. That's actually one of the, I know it's scary because we're talking about displacement of, of skills and tasks and even jobs and professions. But I mean, that's what we've seen at every stage of the industrial revolution. You have mm-hmm. some new innovation, it displaces, it, it, it does something more efficiently, better, faster than a human being could do it. So now someone doesn't do that job anymore than they used to. And what do they do? They get reskilled or upskilled, they move on, they get a different type of job. And over time, what you see is a, the, the more monotonous, grinding types of work, it gets replaced by programs or robots or whatever. Right. And I and I think that's actually a good thing. That's a positive development for society as a whole, as long as people are willing to reskill and upskill, as, as long as they're continue, yes. they're willing to continually learn and develop themselves. So they're ready for the next types of work that they're going to need to do. There's always going to be a need for human beings doing meaningful, impactful work in organizations, There's only so much robots and AI and machine learning can do, but let that, let all of that technology do all of the monotonous, uh, mind numbing stuff, which frees us up to do more creative things, Mm -hmm. more, um, enlivening things. That's, so that's kind of how I, I look at it.
1: I love the positive take on that. I think there is a lot of fear in that from a lot of people worrying about their jobs getting taken by AI, but you're so right. All it does is open up your time for learning more creative skills and for creating more jobs and more of a workforce need for those creative skills and those problem solving skills, those um, skills that involve so much more. What's the
0: the humanness of us, right? Yes. Right. (laughs) That
1: AI can't necessarily. Yeah accomplish i was i was reading this book recently it's called range and it's about how you know the attitude used to be that spe- specialization was was the key you want to get into one field and become really excellent in it and that's how you're successful and then this book kind of went through some case studies showing how actually diversifying your skills is more valuable because ai can specialize in a lot of things but it cannot do the problem solving, the creativity aspects that humans can, in across a bunch of different fields and concepts, and and so I think that is kind of in that vein about how humans. There will always be a need because humans can do that, and AI cannot yet. I don't know where we're headed with AI in the future, but right now it cannot. Yeah, so.
0: I mean it, it's interesting because. I mean, there's different possible futures for like all this machine learning and AI. Right. I mean, one possible future is a really dystopian kind of Terminator kind <laughs> of a, a future. Yeah. That's certainly negative. We don't want the rise of the machines and them taking over everything or like a matrix kind of a future. But right. uh, but kind of on the other end of the spectrum is you kind of have like this utopian Star Trek kind of a yeah. future that's enabled through technology we're probably going to end up somewhere in the middle. So there's going to be pros and cons, Absolutely, um, yeah. but, but ultimately uh, you know, if, if we're aware of those pros and cons uh, and, and then just try to leverage it, it really comes back to, you know, what's our willingness to continually learn and grow and develop. If we're not right. very willing to do that, we're going to be very threatened by, right. by innovation uh, and technologies but if we're open to it, there's no real reason to be threatened by it because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to to learn new things, get reskilled, and then do new, creative, interesting things that might be better than what we used to do. But just one small little example. You know, I'm I, so I do a lot of different things, but I'm a professor, and so one of the things. That I have to do is I have to grade papers. Now, mm-hmm. of all the things I do as a professor, my very least favorite thing to do is to grade papers. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I, I do, I genuinely like to see the growth in students. I like to see the arc of their learning. Uh, you know, those types of things are meaningful and fulfilling. And I do like to be able to provide feedback that helps them to learn and grow. Um, so that is meaningful. But frankly, I mean, re- reading a bunch of papers and providing, you know, a lot of edits and comments and stuff, it's tedious as much as I hope it's, you know, it's it's important, it's necessary. It's tedious. Well, when I started my, my first year as a professor, I mean, really, even before I was a full-time professor, when I was teaching part-time going back, I don't know, my my first university class I ever taught was back in 2003. So I think back all the way back then um, it was literally like people would turn in a paper And I would use a red pen and I would mark on it, right? And over time, it went to digital submissions. And over time, there's things like Turnitin where you can check for plagiarism. And like, there's these these, uh, other technologies that have made it an easier process. And now we're to the point where, you know, if I'm providing comments on the substantive arguments of a paper, I still have to, you know, put in those comments. But a lot of like the the basic, more tedious things like spelling, grammar, Mm -hmm. um, some of those types of things, There's AI engines and, and other uh, tools that provide students that feedback so that I don't have to spend half an hour, you know, circling all the places they need to put a comma. Instead, I can focus on the actual substance of their argument and make, suggestions or, or ask questions to point them in the right direction. Right. Right. And so it's, it's just an illustration of some of the more tedious stuff I used to have to do. I don't have to do as much anymore because technology can do that stuff, which frees me up to focus on the other stuff. That's actually going to be more impactful and a better use of my time and my education, my ability to help the students. And, and we can, we can uh, extrapolate from that. My one little experience, you know, across all different types of jobs, we're going to see the same type of thing over time. So as long as we can lean into it and learn how to use the technology, I think it's going to really enhance our work life.
1: Absolutely. I love how you said lean into it. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about, about HR in general, operating from a fear-based standpoint or a growth and opportunity standpoint, leaning into all this change, leaning into the upheaval of the workforce and the disruption and seeing it as an opportunity to really, become a strategic asset within your organization by bringing new ideas to the table and by innovating. So I think that was a, a great example. Thank you. What do you think? So we have talked a little bit about how it's really important for organizations to create value beyond just the pay, obviously, and also about employee experience. What are the ways that you think in a company's recruitment and talent acquisition process, that they can effectively communicate that to people. I mean, obviously there's the job ad, um, which a lot of companies are still very employer focused on the job ad, right? It's more of a job description. It doesn't make a case about why anyone should work for them, but what are, I think it's kind of harder to advertise like an overall general descriptive like here's the feeling and essence of what it's like to work for us you know what i mean i feel like that's harder to communicate do you have any advice on how you can
0: yeah get that out I, there yeah i mean it's a you're absolutely right and many organizations really struggle with this and so you j- essentially have a job description. That's the job advertisement, <laughs> right? Um, wh- which on a, you know, it's, it's nice to have a good thorough job description. Don't get me wrong. Many organizations don't even have that. And so, you know, someone comes in, they, they feel like either um, there's been a bait and switch, like they were recruited for one type of job and now they're in the, they took right. the job and now they're doing something different. That happens. That happened to me before. That's super frustrating. Um, so that kind of thing happens. It's nice to have a good clear job description, but yeah, you the job posting needs to clarify organizational values uh in a way cuz what you're going for when you're trying to line up applicants in your pool for a particular position you know again assuming you actually know what the position is what you need the person to do um that's not always a safe assumption because many organizations actually <laughs> <Right>. don't do <laughs> job analysis they don't actually know what what they need but yeah. let's assume that's all in place right let's assume that and if you have all that in place like yes you need knowledge, skills, and abilities. You need the certain competencies that someone can bring so they can be effective in the job. But you're also, you're looking for values alignment. Uh, And particularly in this day and age, uh, you're looking for person organization fit, uh, person job fit, and values congruency between the applicant and the role. And, And so you need to be able to, you need to be clear eyed about what the core values of the organization are, what, what are you actually really trying to accomplish? And I see organizations get this wrong all the time, um, where, you know, they have their mission, their vision statements, they have their values. It's on the website. There's a big banner or a big Mm -hmm. sign and, and everyone can say them, but is it actually embedded into the culture of the organization? Is it embedded throughout the different, you know, experiences and, 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 uh, the, the mechanisms of the organization and, and very often it's not. And so you'll end up having a completely inconsistent message between mm. what the organization says its values are, what they're going for, what they won't really want to see from a you know, potential future employee versus what's actually communicated in the job posting. And so then of course you're going to get, you're going to get worse fitting applicants mm. Um, recruiters are going to have a harder time figuring out who would be a good fit. Applicants are going to have a hard, harder time trying to figure out who's going to be a good fit. And then you look at the search committee or the, or the hiring manager, whoever's trying to actually sift through all the applicants, trying to figure out who we should actually hire. They're not terribly clear on what they're actually looking for or what would be a good fit in terms of values, congruence and and alignment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's a no, it's no wonder that you have so many poor hires, and it's, you know, sometimes it's a poor hire because someone conveys on their resume or they're able to snow people in the interview that they have skills and abilities that they don't actually have and they get in the job and they can't do it and that, that doesn't work, right? But more often than not, when it doesn't really work, when it's a poor hire, it's because that values congruence isn't there. Because the, the what matters to me as an individual and as an employee in terms of motivations and and engagement and meaning purpose fulfillment. It's not the same things that the organization values or the way the job is even designed. And so then of course, it's going to be ill-fitting and we're going to be frustrated on both sides. So I think, you know, what we really need to pay attention to when we're crafting those job announcements is be really clear on what core values you want. Communicate those values, communicate the culture. Um, There are compelling ways to communicate Culture and to to communicate, um, you know that you really want you know a psychologically safe and inclusive culture. For example, communicate that in the job posting, Um, but more than that, you have to then communicate it throughout the applicant experience. Uh, So we've talked about employee experience. Let's talk about the holistic human experience in conjunction with the organization. And if you say you value all these things but then I apply for a job and I never hear back. Mm-hmm. Does that, and you say you're a people-centric organization. Is that consistent with what you say is important versus what my experience is that you don't seem to care about me or my time uh, enough to even like reach out and, and send an email or, or something, right? Or I go mm-hmm. in for an interview and you just have a really negative experience uh, or whatever, right? Or all the way through the job offer and the onboarding, like, are, do you actually have um, consistent experiences that are aligned with the job posting and the values that you state and the culture mm-hmm. that you state? And if you don't, you know, it's people are going to get frustrated, right. and word of mouth is going to spread, and people are, you know, going to vote with their feet.
1: I think it's so important to talk about applicant experience because I think a lot of employers haven't, like like employee experience, they haven't had to worry about that as much. And so their applicant experience plan or whatever you want to call it is very ad hoc, right? It's not super intentional. They don't have consistent onboarding practices. They don't intentionally think about how can I make this interview a good experience for the applicant, right? They're They're more worried about how do I get the information I need out of the applicant? And not being intentional about crafting a positive experience. And I think now that the tables have turned, we do need to be so much more intentional about not just trying to get applicants in the door, but how do we treat them throughout the entire experience? So we don't get ghosted or so that they show up for work after they're hired, because I know that that's a big problem problem. right now. Now People are ghosting people and not even showing up for work. So
0: and on the one hand, I feel for organizations that are struggling, they have all these open positions, they're trying to get people, they're having a hard time getting a good pool, they make a hire, and then the person doesn't even show up. I really fear feel for the organization mm-hmm. on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, I, I think that's probably indicative of the experience of the applicant. Right. Um, and you know, sometimes people will just be jerks. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. you can always always leave it to people to find new creative ways to be jerks at times, but most people I think are trying to do right by others. And they, you know, if they are treated well, even if they end up deciding to go to a different job, because in the, in, in the interim between when they get the offer and they are going to start, they get a better offer. Uh You know, if I was treated well, I'm, I, most people are going to reach out to the organization and say, thank you for the offer. I really appreciate it. But I got this other offer, I'm going to take it and at least have that professional courtesy. And so when people don't even do that, it tells me most of the time, I I suspect that it was just a pretty crummy applicant experience, and they were kind of taken for granted. And so like, Now, you know, I still would advocate for professional courtesy, but I kind of get it. Like I understand why someone might do that. And, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, let's, let's pay attention to the whole experience. And you said something a minute ago that I think is important. A lot of times hiring managers or search committees, they're not intentional enough about creating a positive experience. I'll also, I'll flip that around and I'll say, I don't think most of the time that hiring managers or search committees are intentionally trying to create a bad experience. Like I think most of the time they're trying to do a good job, um, but it's not something they've really paid all that much attention to. Mm -hmm. And, and so they're kind of fumbling around and they just, they don't, because they're not paying enough attention to it. They, they just let things go that shouldn't be let go. They, 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 they skip steps or they don't do the common courtesy things that anyone should do uh, in order to make sure uh, that people have a good, positive experience. So even if I don't get the job, like I get it, like there's lots of people applying to lots of different jobs and maybe I'm not the best fit for whatever reason. If I apply though, and I put the time into a meaningful application, you know, I, just like I'm putting in professional courtesy towards them, I would like to get that back. And, and even though I'm not going to work for them right now, cause they didn't offer me the job, Who's to say that I won't try again later or that they won't need me or want me later. And so you're, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. If you're not being proactive about that upfront, recognizing, you know, again, usually there's not malicious intent. There's not people trying to be jerks or trying to make a bad experience for people. Uh, Most of the time it's just, you know, kind of ignorance or inexperience or just not paying proper attention to it. Um, So I can, we can be generous with people that way, but. That's, that's not an excuse. Like we still should be paying attention to it.
1: Right. It's just an unintentional result. Most of the time of them, not making a real plan for that experience. Well, we are coming up here on time, John. And so I want to end here with this one question. If you had a piece of advice to give, to, to give a very overwhelmed HR department of one, what would that be?
0: An overwhelmed HR department of one. Practice self care. You can't be all things to all people all the time. Um, that's a that's a really hard place to be in right now. <laughs> <laughs> HR is right. a hard place to be in right now, anyways, um, because we're always talking about, you know, show empathy and compassion and caring towards your people. Be people centric, right? And I, I agree with all that. I think that's all super important. And a lot of times in a lot of organizations that ends up falling on the HR department to try to push that and, and to support that, Right. who's who's supporting the HR person? And if you only have one person who's trying to be the voice for all of this and pushing the initiatives, and it's just, you know, it's like pushing that big stone, that big rock up the hill. And it, it seems like, you know, sometimes one step forward, two steps back, you know, who's looking out for them? Uh, for their well-being, for their mental health, and for burnout and those sorts of things, um, so I would just say to the HR department of one, you got to look out for yourself, practice self-care, uh, pick your battles, uh, and you know do, you, you can't be all things to all people. You can't win them all, and so you know be strategic and and take care of yourself so that you don't get burned out and uh, don't get overwhelmed.
1: That's great advice. Thank you. I love that. Well, thank you so much, John, for all of your comments and your insight. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I think there's been some real value in it. And is there anything else that you would like to say or any comments that you have before we, before we end here?
0: Just, I think it's a really exciting time. I think, you know, it's a challenging time to be sure, uh, but it's an exciting time for organizations and for employees to reinvent themselves and to create more healthy uh, workplace environments and the future of work you know i'm i'm bullish and i I'm quite optimistic I think you know while while there's you know tons of unforeseen things and there's definitely the possibility of a lot of negative things happening I think uh, these these technological innovations are going to push us in a more positive direction and I think overall that organizations are going to have to learn how to adapt in order to attract and retain good people so i I think what that means for organizations and for the labor force and the experience in the workplace overall, I think is going to notch us up the right direction uh, for a net positive. And so I'm excited to see all of that. Uh, it's a challenging time to keep up with pay. Um, so if, if, if you're struggling with that, you know, do everything you can because you got to keep up with inflation and you you got to keep up with the pay so so it's equitable. But um, but you know, focus on those other things around the employee experience, and if you can do that and, and have meaningful relationships with your people, I think you'll, you'll still be able to attract and retain good people and, and have a good quality work life, um, for them. Uh, so that would be my call to anyone listening. Uh, and it's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you so much, John. Have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you. You too. even at the producer and sponsorship levels. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the human capital innovations podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Bluer than indigo leadership, the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader.